Hi, I'm Arlen Walker, and I'm live from Pelham's Wasteland, and I just listened to the most recent episode of Colin's Spike Pit Green's Spike Pit um, on Anchor, and um, I have a lot of thoughts. You should go listen to his episode about, I think it's called BDSM and Armor or something like that, but it's about, among other things, kind of realism and armor in RPGs. I have, excuse me... A whole lot of thoughts, so I'm just gonna start talking, and we'll, you know, throw some stuff up against the wall and see what sticks. So the first thing that I'm thinking about is kind of the um, evidence of how we know that armor works in real life versus the kind of perception of armor, um, and just talking about the like the physical armor itself, right? The the actual plates of metal or the actual pieces of, of ring mail or, you know, the, the actual links of metal that form the armor and how that differs from a lot of kind of fairly common popular conceptions of how armor works. And so, and, and especially kind of popular conceptions perpetuated by RPGs and D&D in particular. So I'm just going to start talking and we'll see, like I said, I'm going to throw stuff against the wall and see what sticks. So to start with, um, one, I think, really good example of how armor doesn't work is the Lord of the Rings movies, which I, I love the Lord of the Rings movies so much, some of my favorites and all that sort of stuff. But one of the things you will notice is that there are a lot of characters in fairly significant armor who go down pretty easily. And what I mean is essentially mooks, unnamed characters um, who go down basically as if they were shot in a an action movie, except that they are, for instance, like a Gondorian soldier in full plate armor, you know, a full breastplate and pauldrons and helmet and... Um, sabatons and greaves and all of right the whole panoply and they get hit once in the chest with a weapon and go down and that's not realistic at all um armor historically we know protects really remarkably well especially when as it was used historically it is layered one of the things to remember about armor is that you know, ancient and medieval people, they, they had limited scientific knowledge, but they weren't stupid, right? They understood that if you have something like chain mail that is a essentially a flexible metal barrier that is going to pretend cutting stuff from hurting you, you are still vulnerable to blunt impacts. And so obviously what you do is you put on a, a piece of padding, right? A, a padded gambeson or something like that underneath your chainmail, so that you are a lot less vulnerable to blunt attacks, right? It, it makes sense conceptually. Um, and we know from literature of the period and from reenactments and stuff like that, that um, armor is is remarkably effective at preventing damage from blows. The, the idea that... Um, kind of the way that AC actually works in some ways actually makes sense because AC often represents a lot of 
I think the the throws, right, the the attack rolls versus AC, the assumption is that if you're wearing heavy armor, a lot of those are actually making contact. They're just not actually doing any hit point damage, right, because they're getting stopped by the armor. And that's pretty realistic. We know, for instance, that if you slash with a longsword at somebody wearing solid, well-built chainmail, it is very unlikely that your longsword, unless it's made out of something really special and their chainmail is is a piece of shit, um, very unlikely that that longsword is going to actually cut through the chainmail. Now, that's part of why longswords are built the way that they were, with a, a stabby point at the end, because the idea is that if you come across somebody in, in chainmail or, or heavier armor, instead of using the slashy bit at them, you use the stabby bit at them. Or even, we know historically, um, despite what uh, Kevin Madison says in his games, that one of the things you can do with a longsword is you can turn it around and grab it by the blade and use it almost like a baseball bat to bludgeon the enemy. And this was fairly common. We we know because there are um, texts with written descriptions and drawn illustrations um, from the 15th century. Um, I'm blanking on the names even though they're sitting on the shelf just, you know, 20 feet away from me. Um but these these arming manuals show images of knights holding the sword by the blade to whack somebody with the pommel and the hilt, essentially, especially in the head where, you know, blunt damage is going to cause that blunt force trauma pretty directly into the brain. Pretty dangerous stuff. Not something that you see in a lot of RPGs. But then, so there's some other stuff. Um, one thing is that armor weight in RPGs is um, really grossly exaggerated, I think. Um, you see just absurd, you know, 100 or 120 pounds for full plate. Which is not to say that full plate is light. But full plate is, uh, I think common consensus is somewhere in the realm of 50 pounds. Maybe if you're pushing it with like the really heavy decorated stuff, 55 or 60, but really not that heavy. And it's a weight that is, it's not like you're carrying 50 pounds in a backpack, which is totally doable. You can, you can run with 50 pounds in a backpack, which I know because I've done it. Um, but when it's distributed across your body, right? 50 pounds that's just adding a little bit here and a little bit there is not going to feel, I mean, it's going to be heavy. It's going to tire you out, but it's not like trying to, you know, move through a thick swamp or something like that. It's not like you have to walk in slow motion in heavy armor because heavy armor is just, it's, it's not as heavy as a lot of games make it out to be. And that goes back to like, for instance, the concept of swimming, um, real modern day soldiers and in previous wars, other in, in soldiers in, in previous eras have been trained to swim, carrying weapons, carrying a similar or more 
or, or more significant weight in gear to swim to like, you know, say forward a river or swim across through somewhere or like at the landings at Normandy to swim the last little bit to the shoreline or something like that. We, we know that it is possible to swim in that much weight, even in full plate armor. It's not easy. Once again, not easy, but it is possible, especially with somebody who is trained in it, who, who wears it like a second skin because they are, you know, they have been groomed to wear this armor. And that's kind of getting into what's going to be my next point. But right now I'm talking just about the physical realities of armor. So another, another reality that we know historically is that the idea of a, a high AC coming from dexterity to make a nimble fighter, very unrealistic. Um, we have some historical accounts of fighters, warriors who would fight without armor, but they are very, very specifically called out for not fighting with armor. For the most part, historically, in battle, pretty much everybody wore the heaviest armor that they could afford. Which is not to say that everybody was particularly heavily armored, because you can imagine if you're a, you know, a poor peasant, you might only be able to afford a sort of, you know, a, a jacket of leather and some type of makeshift helmet or even a leather cap to go with your spear and your shield. But if you were a, you know, a nobleman, a knight or something like that, you almost certainly would not go into battle without wearing the absolute heaviest, most expensive armor that you could afford. And there are a couple of reasons for this. One of them is that historically we know that heavy armor, because it was so expensive, is also a sign of a trained warrior. Very often... The, the idea of a sort of inept aristocrat who doesn't know how to fight in heavy armor is not completely without cause, but it's not nearly as accurate as the idea that most of the people wearing really good armor are wearing really good armor because they are part of the higher social class that can afford that really good armor. And because they're part of that higher social class, they can afford to train with their weapons regularly and that they have been trained from a young age to do so. And so knights are a great example. You know, a knight in full armor is not just intimidating because they're wearing full armor, but also because of what that armor represents. It represents someone who comes from enough wealth that instead of having to till the fields all day, they can practice with their sword all day. And when you have, you know, a peasant who has had a week of training with the spear coming up against a knight who has had years of training with a long sword or a lance, there isn't much of a contest, right? That that isn't really a, a fair fight, not just because of the heavy armor and the idea, well, the knight has a higher level, so he's got more hit points and all that sort of stuff. But really, part of it is because of how real fights actually work. Um, and I think this is this is where I've I've complained about it before, and I'm I apologize because I'm going to complain about it again. But I don't think the combat mechanics in a lot of role playing games do a very good job of simulating real combat. And I don't think they're necessarily trying to, but 
one of the things that is important to remember about real combat is with a few notable exceptions, pretty much nobody goes into battle wanting to die. And what that means is that for the most part, people will do their best to avoid dying in combat, right? They'll they'll protect themselves a lot more than what we see in RPGs, right? We, we kind of imagine in RPGs this sort of exchange of blows back and forth, one against the other. And yes, that makes sense if you're wearing heavy armor, but if you're not wearing heavy armor, more than likely, if you're a peasant going up against a knight, more than likely what happens is that that peasant just cowers behind their shield until they get killed. Because they don't actually, you know, thrust out. Maybe they muster up their courage and they thrust out once or twice at the night. But really, um, these a lot of RPGs, I think, don't do a very good job of representing the reality of combat. And one of the other ways we can tell that they don't do a good job of representing the reality of combat is because combat in RPGs can be boring. Especially the kind of basic you know, sword and board fighter. If you're playing in a system that doesn't have a lot of optional rules, if you're playing just sort of the most basic versions of D&D, you don't have a lot to do. You're basically just rolling against the enemy's AC, either through Thacko or directly, based on your level and your proficiency and all of that sort of stuff with the weapon to try to hit them and they're rolling to try to hit you back. And it's very much that, you know, back and forth exchange of blows, whoever has the higher level and the better equipment is likely to win. I don't think that real people who have been in sword fights would ever say that a real sword fight feels boring. That, that idea that you would get bored in a sword fight the way that you could get bored in RPG combat. And I don't think that's just because it's your life on the line. I think there is a, a, um, a way in which D and D and D and D based systems fail to represent the reality of combat in a way that makes it, it sufficiently, um, visceral sufficiently interesting that does a i don't know how to describe precisely what i mean but basically what i'm saying is combat in D is not actually that great but we're getting we're getting way off track i was talking specifically about armor and specifically about the physical reality of armor if you are rolling 3d6 down the line for stats i think the idea of dexterity as a bonus to armor class kind of makes sense because the idea of getting that 18 dexterity is so unlikely that basically you uh, you might actually be one of the few historical examples of somebody who is so dexterous and so nimble that they go into battle without wearing any armor. And we know that there are a couple of examples of this, you know, Caesar and Tacitus and... Um, I don't know if there are any examples in, in Herodotus or Thucydides, but specifically I'm thinking about Germanic tribes um, as recorded in Julius Caesar's account of the conquest of Gaul and Tacitus's Germania that would have a sort of elite cadre of warriors who go into battle essentially naked or, or they're described as naked. It's unclear if what they mean is naked, naked, or just not wearing armor naked. 
anyway, that's all kind of aside the point. But especially in more modern forms of the game where, for instance, in our Pathfinder 2 game, one of the things about the way character creation works in Pathfinder 2 is that they basically assume that you're going to have an 18 in whichever stat you prioritize. Whichever, whichever one of the attributes it is that you prioritize, you're almost certain to have an 18 in it. And, of course, what that means is that there are a lot of a lot of player characters running around with 18 decks and with a pretty high armor class from dexterity and who are not in, don't have the same incentive to wear armor that we see historically. That in the historical reality, very rarely do people go into battle unarmored. Really, fighting unarmored is much more often a result of being unprepared or being in a situation where it would be inappropriate to wear armor. So for instance, you talk about like dueling in, in the, the Renaissance or sort of swashbuckly era that, you know, that's at the point where, well, armor hasn't completely gone out of fashion, but it's mostly out of the way. And especially with dueling, if you're just walking around town, you're, you're not walking around town in your full suit of armor or anything like that. You're walking around town in your regular clothes and your boots and carrying your rapier for personal defense, presumably. Um, and using that to, to fight off duelists who attack you, not going into battle expecting a fight, essentially. And that's, I think that's, so for me, that's a lot of the big sort of concerns about the reality of how armor works in the real world versus how it works in these games is that armor is a lot more effective, a lot more heavily used. It is um, not as heavy and restrictive. Basically, I think that in, in game balance terms, armor has been nerfed from its historical kind of historically accurate position to allow for variety within the game, right? Because what I'm describing, essentially a, a more historically accurate game, is a game, to use an example, in Pendragon, you never go into battle without wearing armor. You pretty much wear the heaviest armor that you can, you pretty much always carry a shield, and then you fight with whatever is in your right hand. You have either a lance or a sword or an axe or a mace or something in your right hand, but you're basically always heavily armored with a shield until you get to really, really late armor where you have like plate armor and you don't necessarily need the shield anymore because your plate armor is so, so powerful. The result, of course, is that everybody fights basically the same way. And that's historically accurate. And I don't think that has to be uninteresting. But I think for the sake of gameplay variety, these changes to the way that historical armor works have been made. And that, that it really, a lot of it is for the sake of variety of characters within the game. Partly because, unlike Pendragon, D&D doesn't say you have to be a knight. Pendragon, Pendragon kind of starts with that position, is that if you want to go out and fight things, you have to be a knight. And you have to fight in this way. That's not to say that everyone fights in this way. You know, the Picts fight relatively unarmored because they're super poor and don't have uh, money for armor. But knights fight 
in this specific way, and you're going to be a knight. If you want to go out and fight and play Pendragon, you're going to be a knight, and you're going to fight in this way. Part of that, I think, is because Pendragon has a lot of other things going on than just fighting. And D&D, in some ways, you know, the idea, oh, D&D is just a combat simulator gets thrown around a lot. Um, Personally, I think there's some truth to that. I think it gets overstated sometimes. But the the idea that in, I think, one of the reasons that characters – all fight the same way in Pendragon is because characters are differentiated in other ways, right? Characters in in Pendragon or in Paladin have these these numerical traits that determine how they act in all these different situations. They do not just um, just fight, or there are not just rules for fighting. There's rules for a lot of other things in in Pendragon and Paladin. Other things beyond just fighting. And as a result, yes, everybody fights the same, but not every character feels the same. Anyway, um, and that's kind of a good segue into what I want to talk about next, which is the realities beyond the reality of just how metal armor is a lot more effective than it is presented in games. These other elements of reality that are not represented in many game systems that are important to the way things worked in real medieval Europe. And, and I'm, I'm kind of assuming that we're basing our fantasy worlds on a sort of pseudo-medieval Europe for the most part. And that, that may not be a fair assumption. And if, if you have a fantasy world that is based on something else, there may be some differences. But specifically talking about medieval Europe, there's a lot of sort of core differences between the world of medieval Europe and the world as presented in a lot of fantasy RPGs that I think are important to the discussion. So beyond the way that metal armor actually works physically, what is there that's different about these worlds? Well, one of the things that is important to remember is that for most of medieval history and for much of the history of the ancient world there wasn't really a an armed class that wasn't associated with a specific um state-like entity and what i mean is the idea that um you obviously you didn't really have adventurers like you do in a lot of these games. Most of the people, for instance, in medieval Europe, most of the people who owned swords, who owned chainmail, who owned war horses, and who knew how to use all those things were knights. And most knights were either in the retinue of a lord or were lords themselves, right? Were were enfoffed with a fief. Um, what that means is that this whole idea of the the kind of wandering adventure, the closest that we get in real medieval history is really the kind of mercenary companies that sprout up in the, the late medieval period or in the earlier medieval period, the sort of Norman adventurers, um, Bohemond of Tarantum or Toronto. And um, I mean, even in, in some ways, uh, Duke William the Conqueror, King William the First, um, 
but the, there's a whole number of Norman warriors who sort of go out and fight in the what is sort of the the frontiers of the medieval world in um, England and then later on in in Wales and in Ireland and in Scotland and in Sicily and even you could interpret the Crusades as another version of of this sort of thing happening the the kind of excess military men of Western Europe being diverted off into the frontier or in um, much of Spain which was obviously ruled by the Umayyads um, or or their successors for for most of the medieval world um, anyway what I am getting at is this idea that there really weren't right. There really wasn't a class of adventurer, certainly in the way that um, a many of these RPGs present it. And that ties into some other things. One of the things is that historically most of the wealth in medieval Europe is based on land and it's based on the agricultural production of land the, the the amount of crop that a piece of land can produce is pretty much directly tied to the wealth of whoever owns that piece of cropland. And that sort of changes as we get into the later medieval world and the rise of the, the larger cities and more and more trade, especially of luxury goods and things like that. But really, even then, we're still mostly talking about wealth that comes from land which is tied into the armor question because armor is expensive. So you have knights who kind of have to own land in order to afford armor and swords and lances and war horses and squires. And this is another thing that games very rarely have. Knights didn't operate by themselves. Um, even in the literature where they sometimes do, but they don't always by any means. Um, squires are a central part of the knight's life. The, the squire helps them put on their armor. The squire gives them lances or, or their backup horses in battle. Um, the squire does all these things, does all of these menial tasks for the knight that are kind of necessary to be done, which the knight isn't going to do themselves. And we know nowadays there are, are historical reenactors who have shown, yes, you can hypothetically put on a suit of armor of almost any type just by yourself without any help. But that didn't really happen in medieval Europe because the knights had squires. So you don't, you don't have to deal with the armor by yourself because the squire deals with putting on the armor for you. Um, and the squire deals with all sorts of other stuff that is, is important to the knight. And the idea adventurers in fantasy RPGs pretty much never have squires. They might have torchbearers. They might have henchmen. But the idea of a squire who's specifically there to deal with that sort of menial stuff um those tasks that that's pretty rare torchbearers probably come the closest 
But even then, you know, and some games attempt to introduce these rules, and I don't think many of them do a very good job of that, you know, in um, 3.5 and on to Pathfinder. And I believe in Pathfinder 2, there are rules for how long does it actually take to put on your armor in the morning when you wake up so that there is a decision about whether or not you actually put on the armor or you go straight into the fight if, for instance, you are ambushed while asleep. Um, that is an interesting attempt at realism because they haven't added squires, right? Part of the point about putting on armor is you don't do it by yourself. You you have a squire who does it for you. And so if you don't, so this is another thing that goes back to the idea of Pendragon. One of the things Pendragon assumes is that you are knights. You, if you do not necessarily hold land at the start of the game, you almost certainly will hold land at some point. You will have a manor, you'll have a fief, you will have an income in the way that knights who own land have income that will pay for your armor that will pay for your horses that will pay for whatever retinue you possess that will pay for your squires wages if they need wages that will pay for essentially all of the things that need paying for in the knight's life and you're going to have a squire and your squire is going to do things for you your squire is a, a useful part of the whole assembly the the squire is like it, almost like the squire is a part of the armor set, if that makes sense. Anyway, um, but one of the other things to think about is that in this, um, so medieval society is sometimes divided into three classes of people. Um, those who farm, those who pray, and those who rule. And those who rule are also those who fight. And so what we have are essentially the peasantry, the peasantry who makes up the, the vast majority of the population who is working the land, who is producing the wealth of the, the crop harvest that is dependent for this whole system to work. You have those who pray, the, the monks and the priests and all of that sort of stuff, who are ensuring um, the salvation of everybody in the entire community. And then you have those who rule and those who rule are also those who fight. And because they're not spending their time farming or praying, a lot of what they do is learning how to fight. And this is something that, that games don't really represent particularly well either. Um, knights. So my, the, the simple rule of thumb that I remember is it's about seven years each stage. So up from the age of zero to seven, a boy who is going to be a knight doesn't have any responsibilities. From about seven to 14, he is a page. And that means that he does things like um, serving in the great hall. He runs errands for people. He does all these things. But he's also already being trained in weapons. From 14 to 21, he is a squire. He's doing all this work for his knight. And he is still being trained in weapons. And finally, from 21 onwards, presumably at the age of 21, he becomes knighted and becomes a full knight, is still training with weapons. And part of the point of all that is to say that a knight at age 21 or so, a, a freshly, a newly minted knight, 
a you know fresh from the the church where he had the sword placed on his shoulder and became a knight and all of that sort of stuff um has had a lot of experience practicing at arms which is not not the same thing as being in battles and fighting and all that sort of stuff although as a squire he may have been in battles and at sieges and all of those sorts of things um, he's also had a mentorship because presumably the squire relationship goes two ways. The squire does all this work for the knight, but the knight also mentors the the squire. They, you know, teach them how to be a knight and help train them and, and you know, mold them into a, um, a man who is hopefully, you know, morally upright and upholds the code of chivalry and all that sort of stuff, but is also a, a capable warrior. And so what I'm... What I'm getting at is that the games, for the most part, many of these kind of in the D&D vein RPGs, seems to me don't have a good way to represent that historical reality. The idea of pages and squires and knights training with weapons all the time, excuse me, versus peasants who have to work the land who don't get a chance to. There is a big difference between somebody who has spent years with a sword, even if it's a practice sword in their hands, versus a peasant who has just picked one up. And that's even assuming that they're allowed to have a sword because another historical reality, in lots of parts of medieval Europe, there were restrictions on weapons that you were allowed to own or carry or things like that based on your status as a member of the nobility. So peasants in many places, weren't even allowed to carry real swords. In in some cases, they were allowed to carry kind of smaller, almost showy swords. Um, there's a specific term like a townsman sword or something like that. But um, the the kind of large hand-and-a-half long sword that is, is so iconic to knighthood in many places wasn't even allowed to peasants. And if that's the most efficient tool for one man to kill another man, and you have one person who has trained in it for years who is allowed to carry it, and one person who is, you know, carrying a spear that he trains with, you know, one weekend a month, essentially, the, the equivalent for our modern um, timekeeping and all that sort of stuff. Um well, no shit the knight's going to win every time. Or as close to every time as matters. Hypothetically, the peasant could get lucky sometimes, but almost always the knight's going to win. So what I am getting at, and even um, when you have mercenary companies in the later medieval period, um, many of these mercenaries become mercenaries because they are veterans of the um, wars fought by they, they essentially start as feudal levies and spend so much time fighting that they are veterans that they know how to fight really well and all that sort of stuff. And so they just decide, okay, well, instead of going back to the farm, I'll just stay a mercenary. Um, what I am getting at is that there's a lot of other stuff beyond just the reality of physical, the way that metal works when you smack 
a, a breastplate made out of steel with a sword made out of steel, right? That's one piece of reality with regard to armor. There is, <coughs> excuse me, there's another piece of reality with regard to armor, and that is the entire kind of rest of everything in the medieval world that is tied into this issue, right? Essentially, you... And and missing some of these parts makes it hard to recreate the reality of armor or the reality of a lot of things, right? Um, we know, historically, that coinage was used in medieval Europe, but not at all like it is used today or even under, say, the Roman Empire. Um, most wealth was traded in kind because most wealth was harvested grain. Um, and as a result, the idea of a, a sort of coinage economy that comes from dungeon robbers who steal gold from these dungeons, that doesn't really work because who are they going to, what are they going to trade it with or for? They basically have to get the gold and then there aren't any banks, right? That That's one of the things people don't think about is that banks are a historical invention. So there's no there's no place to say like, okay, I'm going to put my gold in the bank and just let it stay here and all that sort of stuff because there aren't any banks, right? There's not, nothing. What do you do with all of these gold coins? Do you take them to the blacksmith and say, hey, here's a, you know, a handful of gold coins if you can sell me a suit of armor? And the blacksmith says, all right, but then what do I do with them, Right. Well, maybe the butcher accepts gold coins, but this influx of gold, right, would totally change the world. And one of the things, one of the reasons that we know that historically is because it did. Because one of the things that happened in the real world is that Spain obviously discovered and then conquered huge sections of North and South America. And a lot of one of the things that they found a lot of was gold, and they transported a lot of gold back to the old world, and it totally reshaped the economy. One of the big reasons why the late Renaissance and into the Enlightenment era economy was fundamentally different than the medieval economy was because there was all this gold that had come from the Americas. So we know what we know what happens when you have a whole bunch of gold brought into a medieval society, it stops being medieval, right? When all these gold coins start getting circulated around, it's not really a real medieval society anymore, which sort of gets into the issue of world building and trying to figure out, well, what would, what the kind of alternate history thing, right? What would happen if, for instance, all of those gold coins were brought in, but there wasn't gunpowder, right? Well, you know, something's changed, something's stay the same. Is gunpowder the biggest cause of the decline of knighthood? Or is it the growth of 
essentially professional infantry, Swiss pikemen and English longbowmen and um, Genoese crossbowmen and all of these different groups around Europe who around the same time in the, the late 14th to early 15th centuries start to have these, you know, professional essentially professional infantrymen, is that what kills off knighthood? Is it not the gunpowder at all? Because there was gunpowder at the time, but gunpowder wasn't super useful until a lot later. So this this kind of leads us to an interesting question, right? And, and you have to make certain historical assumptions. And what I am getting at is the idea that the fact that armor doesn't work in D&D like it does in the real world is a matter of a lot of factors, not just the physical reality of how armor responds to weapons when it is struck. It is also a reality of the fact that the whole social structure of many of these fantasy worlds doesn't, doesn't really fit in the medieval world, right? There, there isn't really a, an equivalent in a lot of cases, certainly the, you know, the idea that almost all the wealth comes from farming and is most of the trade is done in, uh, in barter using the, the physical resources rather than with coins or anything like that. That's something that, that just uh, is so foreign to most people today, I think. And it just, it, it's kind of hard to explain and it's becomes an element of like, you know, I think a lot of people who like the game the way it is would say, well, that's just, you know, you're making it too complicated. You're, you know, you're taking away the interesting, the fun by introducing all this realism and like the idea of what do you do with all these gold coins when nobody will accept gold because what they want is grain, right? Most, I think most people would say, well, that's not fun. And that's that's a totally fair response. I get that. I, I get that people think that's not fun. I actually think it might be kind of fun. But then I really like Pendragon. And Pendragon basically says, you're going to play a knight, and you're going to wear heavy armor, and you're going to, you know, take part in this actual, mostly medieval society. It's not it's not quite real medieval, but it's it's pretty close. Anyway... That's just a bunch of my thoughts on the subject. So that's a very long podcast after I've been so good about doing short podcasts. I got so excited talking about all of this stuff about medieval realities and things like that. And it was a lot of fun. Thank you, Colin, for uh, bringing this discussion to my attention and allowing me to talk at you for a while about it. Um, I, I obviously am very interested. And if you want, you know, like reading material, books to check out, things like that, let me know and I will put together a list or make an addendum to this one, talk about some of the things that I think you should uh, look at and, and think about and all of that sort of stuff for this um, this material. <sighs> Thank you for listening, listener. Um, if you want to get in contact, hit me up here on Anchor at 
Pelham's anchor.fm slash Pelham's Wasteland or on Twitter at Cows from Powis. I have a blog that is in the podcast description where I post poetry if you are interested in poetry. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun with this episode. I, I hope that I came across. I was talking pretty fast for most of it because I was excited. Um, yeah, thank you for listening. Uh, I've been Arlen Walker, and I've been live from Pelham's Wasteland. See you next time.